Hey y'all! On the show, we've talked about the importance of Haiti to Black Americans, whether they ever went there or not, how important it was symbolically. We've talked about that same kind of importance with Liberia, again, whether Black people went there or not. And today, we're going to talk about Ghana, less as a symbol and more specifically about Black expatriates who lived in Ghana. My guest today is Professor Kevin Gaines from the University of Virginia, and we're talking about his book, American Africans in Ghana, Black Expatriates and the Civil Rights Era. And yes, you heard it right. It's American Africans, not African Americans. So why Ghana? Well, to really understand the massively important moment it was on March 5th, 1957, when Ghana declared its independence and had a huge celebration, we're going to start by painting the picture. What did Ghanaian independence look like? This is a really dramatic moment. There's a stadium in Ghana with 100,000 people there, cheering, chanting freedom, just a a spirit of euphoria. And partly because the the struggle for independence from British colonial rule had been going on for much of the 20th century, but had really stepped up after World War II in 1948. And so it's the culmination of a moment for people who had lived under British rule in what had been the Gold Coast colony. But it's also a culmination for African-Americans, people of African descent all over the world, and African peoples. At midnight, the Union Jack of you know, British symbolizing British rule comes down, and the flag of Ghana, red, yellow, and green tricolor of Ghana with the black star in the middle, goes up to massive cheers. And Kwame Nkrumah, who is the leader of Ghana and Ghana's first prime minister, gives a speech at the podium at this moment. And Nkrumah, who was a really dynamic orator, you know, he says, at long last, the battle has ended. Ghana, your beloved country is finally free. And Nkrumah had studied in the United States during the 1930s and 40s. So he had made all these connections with African-American intellectuals who were interested in Africa. And he also invited a lot of African-American civil rights leaders to come to the independence ceremony. So Dr. King was there. Dr. King, just fresh from the success of the Montgomery bus boycott, like 27 years old, he's there. A. Philip Randolph is there. Ralph Bunch is the first black American to win the Nobel Prize. And he was a, a UN diplomat. He was there. Nkrumah also invited leaders of African struggles for national liberation. And also he he invited West Indian leaders, Norman Manley of Jamaica and a whole bunch of others. He also had, of course, his longtime advisor, a Pan-African activist and intellectual, George Padmore, who was from Trinidad. And Padmore was his political advisor. And Padmore was like the most connected Pan-African activist in the world. He knew everybody and everybody who was anybody in the African anti-colonial nationalist movement passed through his uh, apartment in London. So it's a really dynamic moment. And you have to bear in mind that when Ghana achieves its independence, the United States is still a Jim Crow country. Dr. King had just had this success in Montgomery, but the civil rights movement in the United States stalls 
for a few years. You know, you've got massive resistance in the South as white Southern politicians refuse to enforce the Supreme Court's desegregation order. At this moment, it seems like the the Pan-African movement, the movement for national independence in Africa is moving faster than political change in the United States. So this is a really exciting and euphoric moment. Nkrumah was a world statesman at this point. It's hard to imagine an African leader, other than Mandela maybe, or maybe Kofi Annan later, another great Ghanaian. It's hard to imagine an African nationalist leader having as much worldwide fame and exposure and bandwidth as Nkrumah had. Nkrumah was truly a dynamic figure who had big dreams for Ghana and big dreams for African liberation. And it was a moment of incredible optimism throughout the Western world. Nkrumah is on the cover of Time magazine. He's just really front and center. African-Americans are tremendously proud of him because he really symbolizes a power, uh, you know, black power and agency that just doesn't quite exist at the same level in the United States. So it's a tremendously optimistic moment for the worldwide African diaspora and for African peoples. Louis Armstrong had, had gone to Ghana the year before, Louis Armstrong, the great jazz trumpeter. He said, and he performed for Nkrumah, he said that that was the most important thing that he had ever done. Maybe second to that was getting the call from the great jazz band leader, King Oliver, to go to Chicago, to leave New Orleans and go to Chicago, where he became a star. But playing for Nkrumah, that was just it for Louis Armstrong. And he really hit it off with Nkrumah. Unfortunately, Louis Armstrong couldn't come to the independence, but his wife, Lucille Armstrong, went. So, you know, and if you look at the black press, there's just a lot of stuff on Nkrumah in Ghana and, and this really hopeful moment for political change in Africa. It kind of symbolized for Africans and African-Americans, Black liberation manifested. People thought this was like the beginning of a wave. It was symbolically huge. Absolutely. And that really sort of gets at this moment of Pan-Africanism. Ghana's independence is a really culminating moment in Pan-Africanism. Now, when we talk about Pan-Africanism, you could describe it as a sort of an idea or an ideal that African-Americans have had since the 19th century. And in the 19th century, it was this idea that people of African descent had a shared sense of identity and destiny that united all peoples of African descent and Africans. By the 20th century, Pan-Africanism becomes a political movement of Africans and West Indians, African-Americans, who are struggling against systems of racial and colonial oppression. And you have the first Pan-African Congress in London in 1900, organized by folks from the diaspora. It's not until the Pan-African Congress in Manchester in 1945, that's the first Pan-African Congress that is led by African nationalist leaders. So that there's a shift in leadership of of the Pan-African political movement from folks from the diaspora to folks on the continent. And that's a major shift. And that really, you know, gives a lot of momentum to, you know, the, the process that would lead to Ghana's independence. At the moment of Ghana's independence, people see Pan-Africanism 
that vision coming to fruition. A year after independence, Nkuma came to America, and Black people were really happy to see him when he came. I want to talk about his trip to America. Nkrumah, he wasn't satisfied with just getting, gaining independence. He came to the United States, and he's very unique among post-independence African leaders in going to the United States and visiting Black communities. And there were some Black communities that he knew very well from his time in the United States when he was going to, I think he went to University of Pennsylvania uh, for his advanced degree. He went to Lincoln University, the historically Black college, which is also known for having African students. When uh, Nkrumah was at Lincoln University in the late 20s, Thurgood Marshall was there and Langston Hughes was there. And so, of course, Nkrumah knew all these folks and could sort of corresponded with them and reconnected with them throughout. But when he comes to the United States, he's a guest of the State Department. And the State Department, you know, wants to have friendly relations with this leader and this new nation. But he goes to Harlem, which he knew very well, spent a lot of time in Harlem. He goes to Philadelphia, where he had some connections. And he also goes to Chicago, where there's a very vibrant Black community that is interested in African affairs. In each of those places, he's welcomed as like a conquering hero. Nkrumah was this incredibly dynamic, charismatic, attractive man. One of the things I noticed in my research on Nkrumah, in Ghana, for sure, but probably in other places too, women just kind of gravitated to him. So there's all these pictures of Nkrumah at public rallies in Ghana and uh, a woman will break through and like embrace him. <laughs> so he had this, he had this kind of appeal, this uh, kind of magnetism. And basically Nkrumah made these trips and wanted to maintain this connection with African-Americans because he, as I was trying to say before, was the only African leader who made a point of repeatedly inviting African-Americans to come to Ghana to help build the new nation, to help build the new Africa. This is an incredibly optimistic moment of political change in Africa. And he felt like African-Americans not so much had a duty, but you know, if they, if they felt that that was what they wanted to do, he, he, he encouraged it. And quite a few people did take him up on that. Some of the first African-Americans to go to Ghana had gone even before independence. There was a, a couple African-American dentists named Robert and Sarah Lee, and they were the, among the first to go. There were other folks who were maybe not as sort of well-known within sort of the history of Ghana. But Nkrumah wanted people to come, particularly with, with technical skills, and there were a lot of folks who were builders, contractors, electricians, and they were really crucial. I mean, they're probably the least visible part of the African-American expatriate community, but they did some of the most consequential work. J. Max Bond, who was a pioneering African-American architect, went to Ghana and helped you know, design some of the, the government buildings and his wife, Jean Carey Bond, who was an intellectual and uh, critic 
and an editor, contributing editor to Freedom Ways magazine was there in Ghana too. So the African-American expatriate community tended to be folks who were teachers, who were intellectuals and writers. Of course, in my book, I mentioned Julian Mayfield, who was an actor, novelist, and a journalist, and also a, a radical left activist. His wife, Anna Olivia Cordero, who was from Puerto Rico, was a physician. She, Dr. Cordero, established women's health clinics throughout Ghana. So Nkrumah wanted people who could support him politically, as Mayfield did, but who could also build a health, public health infrastructure like Dr. Cordero. And, you know, people who could assist with the training of law school. Here, the other thing is Nkrumah did not just welcome black people as expatriates and as folks who could help with nation building. He invited people all over. And this is kind of a, a wild sort of <laughs> uh, expatriate example. But he had this woman from Germany named Hannah Reich, who was actually um, Hitler's pilot during Nazi Germany. And they became really good friends. And Hannah Reich basically trained the Ghana Air Force. Of course, W.E.B. Du Bois moved to Ghana in 1961 with his wife, Shirley Graham Du Bois. And they were the sort of elder uh, figures in the African-American expatriate community. And Du Bois was there to be the head of the Encyclopedia Africana Project. And this is a long-standing project that Du Bois wanted to be involved with. And so the Ghana government decided to back it financially. And so I guess that gives you an idea of the diversity of the expatriate community. The African-American expatriate community was very cohesive. And we're not talking about a lot of folks, but we're talking about a critical mass of Black people who are there, who share the political goals of Nkrumah, uh, Nkrumah basically said that the independence of Ghana is meaningless without the total liberation of the African continent. And a lot of the African-American expatriates who were attracted to Ghana really shared that vision and were trying to help him accomplish it. I forgot to mention one of the most famous, if not the most famous, African-American expatriate in Ghana, Maya Angelou. Maya Angelou was there. She was actually on her way to Liberia. But her son was injured in an automobile accident in Ghana, and so she ended up staying in Ghana and really becoming politically involved with the Ghana press. She wrote editorials, a lot of them really critical of the United States and pro-Ghana. Maya Angelou wrote this wonderful book, The Heart of a Woman. It's not about her time in Ghana, but it really talks about African-Americans in Harlem, where she was at that time, the transformation of African-American identity in the, the, the context of the decolonization of Africa or the liberation of Africa. Identity, your book is called American Africans. And that was a big thing Black Americans who moved to Ghana were thinking about, like how much they considered themselves to be African and how much they considered themselves to be American. Grappling with identity is something you focus on with a lot of specific individuals. And I think one of the most interesting ones is Polly Murray. 
one because you were just talking about like people who had skills were often invited to Ghana and she went to be a teacher well to be a professor to teach the law and as she was teaching law she felt herself more American than African as she was in Ghana which was really interesting yeah I mean Polly Murray is a very interesting figure Polly Murray was part of that legal team under Charles Houston and later Thurgood Marshall at Howard University that really came up with sort of the legal strategy to attack segregation, to attack Jim Crow and the doctrine of separate but equal. And so she's recently getting credit for that. She's also getting recognized by historians as being somebody who was among the founding members of second wave feminism of the National Organization of Women, and that she was basically making legal arguments that were influenced by the, the anti-racist you know, arguments that she was making against segregation. She was applying them as a sort of a foundation for arguments for women's rights. She was basically theorizing the oppression of women by calling it Jane Crow. And in a way, Polly Murray is this incredibly important figure. You know, somebody like Ruth Bader Ginsburg would have known about Polly Murray and known about her arguments and used them in her role as a, a litigator for women's rights. Polly Murray was interesting because she was uh, in her youth. She's from North Carolina. She moved to Harlem in the 1930s she became associated with other black radicals, Ella Baker, you know, so Polly Murray was involved in these black radical projects in Harlem in the 1930s. And then in the 1940s, she was actually protesting against Jim Crow. She and a friend, a, a female companion were arrested for violating segregation law uh, on a bus. And the NAACP they were a little reluctant to take up her case because Polly Murray was basically a gender non-conforming person. You know, we would think of her as someone who was queer, but back in those days, you know, there was no gay liberation movement. So she has this really radical background and sensibility. But in the 1950s, during the Cold War and Cold War repression, and of course, you know, a lot of black radical and liberal intellectuals got persecuted during the Cold War, of course, Robeson, Du Bois, but even people like Polly Murray were undergoing FBI investigation. People like Ralph Bunch even had an FBI investigation that could have you know, derailed his career. And I think after that experience, what happened was the FBI investigated her and said that she could not go to Liberia. They refused to give her a visa to go to Liberia. So she later, you know, when things ease up a little bit, she gets to go to Ghana and Kruma invites her to Ghana, as you said, to help build the legal infrastructure to train, you know, Ghanaian lawyers. And Polly Murray does that. I think going to Africa for any thoughtful African-American person is going to make you think about these questions of identity. You know, how American am I? How African am I? And Polly Murray went through this kind of, you know, sort of reflection about that. I think she was also kind of isolated socially and culturally 
And she ended up finding her community, not among the African-American expatriate community, which was pro-Nkrumah, but among Ghanaian opposition figures, Nkrumah's political enemies. And some of them were law students. She also, I think, you know, was part of the, there's the other African-American expatriate community that are working for the U.S. Embassy, right? And some of them are CIA. And so that's the community that Polly Murray kind of gravitated to or, you know, sort of found a home with or socialized with. And so she was basically, and I think at, at some level she wanted to make a name for herself, maybe overcome this, uh, this association of her with left-wing causes. And so I think she wanted to project herself as a loyal, patriotic American. And that meant that she was critical of the Ghana government. And it really made her time difficult there. It really shortened her time there. She did a lot of work. She co-wrote a textbook on the Ghana constitution. So she was, she was very productive as a teacher and as a scholar, a legal scholar. But I think she realized that, oh, she, you know, she was asking for an audience with Nkrumah and Nkrumah basically just like said, you know, no way. And, and I think she could sort of see that the writing was on the wall that she probably needed to go before she was, you know, kicked out of the country. And the thing about Polly Murray, she was in Ghana at a really critical time for Ghana and for Africa. She was there during the Congo crisis. And the Congo crisis was the civil war in the newly independent Congo that was really instigated by Belgian political and military officials. And they backed a secession movement to undermine the independence of the Congo and to undermine the leadership of the Congo's prime minister, Patrice Lumumba. And so all of this stuff is happening when, and it's a very politically charged moment, Ghana gets involved by sending Ghanaian army troops as UN peacekeepers in Ghana. And so Nkrumah is trying to use diplomacy. He's trying to, you know, support the resolution of this conflict in the Congo. And it ends really badly for the Congo and Africa and Lumumba. Lumumba is assassinated. Uh, It's not announced to the press until a month later. And it's just like Nkrumah had been trying to use diplomacy to resolve the conflict. He went to Washington, D.C. He went to New York at the U.N. And basically what it looked like to African-Americans, many African-Americans, and certainly the expatriates, was a democratically elected leader of an African country, an independent African country, being slowly removed from power and assassinated through an undemocratic process, you know, to say the least. And so that was a huge political controversy. And we, you know, we later found out that Lumumba was killed. He was taken into custody by Congolese troops, but killed by a Belgian firing squad. The assassination of Lumumba basically was a wake-up call to Nkrumah and Ghana and the world that political change in Africa was not going to happen peacefully, that there was going to be armed struggle. That was really the turning point. And even Nkrumah, I think, you know, Nkrumah was, was heavily identified with the philosophy of nonviolence. But after the Congo crisis, he basically dissolved this sort of political formation around nonviolence. 
So that's, I guess, Polly Murray gets caught up at a moment, an incredibly politically fraught moment, when the stakes for African liberation go way up. And at that moment, she's, she's kind of on the wrong side. You talk about a lot of people in your book who ended up in Ghana and were very critical of America. They left or were forced out because of their criticisms of America. And they used Ghana as a platform for like the free speech they weren't allowed to mm. air in America. Absolutely. And that's, that's not what Polly Murray did, which, was, which kind of makes her really unique. She's interesting because she really saw herself as a defender of American values. And, and she starts to see the early signs of restrictions on civil liberties in Ghana, which would become a serious problem. And so she sees herself as defending American values. And, and she really, I think, thinks in interesting ways about what it means to be an American and what America's you know, message to the world could be at that time. It's just that she runs afoul of a really difficult political situation. But, you know, you mentioned that some people are going to Ghana and really sort of fleeing political repression in the United States. This is the Cold War. It's also still a Jim Crow society. And when we use the term expatriate, we think of somebody who decides, hey, maybe I'll just leave the United States and go to this place it's my happy place. It's where I want to live and it's where I feel comfortable. So I will just be an expatriate there. It's actually a lot more complicated. There were expatriates who went by choice, but then there were exiles. There were people who went to Ghana because they were fleeing political or state repression in the United States. And there are a couple people like that. There was a man named Preston King. Preston King was the member of a prominent black family in Albany, Georgia. And King was a, a scholar. He was studying at the London School of Economics. And as a young man in those days during the Cold War, you had to check in with your draft board. And he got this letter from his draft board. Okay, it's Jim Crow, Albany, Georgia. And basically the letter says, Dear Preston, a real common form of disrespect of black people under Jim Crow, that you don't grant them their full name. You don't grant them their title, you know, and he refused to cooperate with his draft board. And basically the draft board came for him. He's still, a st he's a student in London. And basically they, they extradited him back home to face charges of violating his draft board. And so Ghana gave him political asylum. So he ends up going to Ghana with his wife. And he's basically a political refugee from Jim Crow. Um, Julian Mayfield, the novelist and actor, Mayfield had been on Broadway in a production of Cry the Beloved Country in the late 1940s, which is a big deal. Anyway, he wrote a couple of novels and was a very, very visible black radical journalist writing for, you know, dissent. And he took up the cause of publicizing Nkrumah's vision and life in Nkrumah's Ghana to Western audiences. So he's definitely trying to write about Ghana and Nkrumah 
as they would want to be understood by Westerners. And of course, in the Cold War, there are a lot of people, you know, right-wing people who basically accuse Nkrumah and Ghana of being socialist or communist or something like that. So Mayfield is writing about Ghana for American and Western audiences. And he gets involved in a movement led by a man named Robert Williams, who is a North Carolina NAACP official. And Robert Williams is, he's working in Monroe, North Carolina, where the white supremacy is fierce and violent. And he organizes, Williams is an ex-Marine, he organized an armed self-defense force, a black militia. So basically, after the Brown decision, the Klan and white supremacists throughout the South went after, uh, in small towns that had NAACP chapters, they'd go after the black professional, they'd go after the black doctor or dentist who basically was funding the local NAACP. And Robert Williams knew this was happening. And so he organized this militia to defend them. And so when the Klan showed up, they, shot, they, they fired a volley and the Klan turned tail. So he becomes known as this advocate of, of armed self-defense. And a bunch of nonviolent activists go to Monroe to try to, to show the superiority of nonviolence. The FBI comes in, there's a disturbance, white supremacists come and start shooting at the nonviolent people, Williams people who are armed, you know, protect them, and it becomes this chaotic situation. And Williams is arrested for kidnapping, and it's totally trumped up. This elderly white couple who lived on the Williams Street, they were caught in the middle of all this chaos. And so Williams said, get in here <laughs> and we'll protect you. And then the FBI goes and, and, and charges Williams with kidnapping. So they put out that, you know, that most wanted poster and the FBI poster for Williams says he's armed, dangerous, and he's like, uh, you know, psychologically disturbed. And in effect, they're saying shoot on sight. So Mayfield, Robert Williams, and their, their uh, wives drive out of there past police checkpoints. And um, Mayfield's wife has this commission to work in Ghana as a, a women's health practitioner. And Mayfield figures out a way to get to Ghana. And then he becomes connected with the Ghana government. So Mayfield is a, a refugee from an FBI manhunt, as was Robert Williams. Robert Williams ended up in exile in Cuba. He didn't go to Ghana. So Mayfield becomes the sort of the leader of the African-American expatriate community. And at this politically charged moment after the Congo crisis, he is made responsible for deciding who we can trust as a black American expatriate, who's going to be loyal to the Nkrumah government and who's not going to cause trouble like Polly Murray. And Mayfield becomes sort of the, un the unofficial leader of the expatriate community that way. So those are a couple of examples, Preston King and Julian Mayfield, of people who go to Ghana not because they, you know, you know, want to live there or feel happier in an, in an African country than the United States. They're fleeing political repression. Malcolm X is super interesting. There's a whole chapter on him, and I definitely want to talk about Malcolm X. Malcolm X goes to Ghana at a really pivotal moment. Nkrumah has become much more radical. Nkrumah was basically trying to stay on the good side of the United States, but at this point, he's really very critical of the United States. And there are a lot of people in the Ghana government who are protesting. And 
the expatriates are trying to figure out what their role is and what their contribution is. And so they invite Malcolm X to give themselves a shot in the arm. And Malcolm X is embarked on this tour. You know, he's left the nation of Islam and he's trying to figure out what the next step is politically. And so he wants to learn from being in Africa. Malcolm X, you know, his parents were Garveyites. Malcolm X was deep down a Pan-Africanist. And so he really wants to go to Ghana. He wants to experience what he, what he thinks is the African revolution in Ghana. And so he goes there, is welcomed by the expatriate community. And it's just this incredible, you know, Malcolm is searching for a political community. The expatriates are searching for political relevance. And so it's an incredible moment for them to welcome Malcolm X, who is this, you know, increasingly prominent black leader who shares their political vision. And so it's a wonderful experience for Malcolm, who by all accounts was curious, who was willing to listen and learn. You know, you think of Malcolm X as the guy with all the answers and the firebrand who's going to tell people, you know, what to do and what to think. But it was a different kind of Malcolm that people experienced there. Malcolm spoke at the University of Ghana, and he really galvanized African students. You know, because of his untimely death, Malcolm became known as a sort of a Pan-African martyr, kind of like Patrice Lumumba. But Malcolm had this incredible impact on young Africans and young African-Americans. It's really a, a moment of tremendous possibility and promise in terms of the U.S. Black movement shifting to a, a more radical phase, a more Pan-African phase. Obviously, you know, that was not to be because of Malcolm's death. But Malcolm met with Nkrumah. There's a lot of mystery around that meeting. Some people suggest that Malcolm was a little bit disappointed in the interaction with Nkrumah. And I think what seems pretty likely is that Nkrumah was under a lot of diplomatic pressure from the United States. And of course, to the U.S. establishment, Malcolm was this really dangerous and scary figure right? Malcolm's calling for, you know, armed self-defense and, and is very radical and very, very fiercely condemning the United States as a racist, hypocritical society. And so I think Nkrumah tried to keep Malcolm at arm's length because the U.S. government and the diplomatic corps there was really frightened by Malcolm X's visit to Ghana. And so I think they, that might have affected their interaction. And Malcolm writes, a lo- he writes about his time in Ghana in his autobiography. And the most important thing that he takes away from Ghana is that Ghana has this diplomatic corps that's international. There's this white, white guy from Cuba. There's this Chinese foreign minister, Huang Hua, there is a Tanzanian diplomat that he meets. And he basically is able to, by talking with all of these people in the Ghana diplomatic corps from all over the world, to see the struggle of Africa and the struggle of African-Americans as part of a worldwide struggle against imperialism and colonialism. 
So Malcolm, I think, is radicalized by his trip to Ghana and becomes a revolutionary. And you see that in his speeches for the short time that he has left on this earth. But he's also somebody who wants African-Americans to increase and use their political power. Malcolm also says on this question of identity, he didn't think that black Americans should migrate physically to Africa, but that they should migrate to Africa spiritually, culturally, and psychologically. So Malcolm really feels like African-Americans should own and honor their African heritage. And that's really pretty much what he stood for, even before he left the Nation of Islam, but certainly after. So this whole era of like Black expats in Ghana, it all ends in a coup, really. Nkrumah loses a lot of support among Ghanaians. There's an assassination attempt on Nkrumah where he's badly injured in 1962. And then he becomes, there's another assassination attempt. A, a guy shoots at him. And Nkrumah, I think, becomes really fearful and he increases his security apparatus. And he's got a lot of agents just listening to people and trying to collect, you know, gossip and to, to root out plots against him. And he starts jailing his opponents. So he really goes from being this beloved figure to somebody who has lost a lot of support from the Ghanaian public. And then the U.S. authorities are looking for ways to get rid of him. And eventually he's overthrown in a coup in 1966 with only a fraction of the military. And Kuma is out of the country. He's trying to negotiate a peace settlement between the United States and Vietnam, you know, because this is the time of the U.S. war in Vietnam. And he's overthrown. He goes into exile in Guinea with his ally, president of Guinea, Sekou Touré. And he never makes it back into power. There's an attempt to restore him in 1967, but he dies in exile in 1972. Now, when Nkrumah was overthrown, a lot of these expatriates who were pro-Nkrumah got caught in the middle of that. And some of them were put in jail. Mayfield was harassed. A lot of them were expelled from the country because they were, they were close to Nkrumah. And now you have this military junta that's running Ghana, and they're just going after anybody who, who supported Nkrumah. And, you know, it was a very, very, for a lot of the expatriates, incredibly disappointing, incredibly disillusioning. A lot of people just, you know, never got over that. But, you know, went back to the, to the United States and got, you know, remain politically active in other ways. You know, Gene Carey Bond goes back and continues writing for Freedom Ways. And St. Clair Drake is a sort of a founding leader of the Black Studies movement, organizes a Black Studies program at Stanford and continues to promote Pan-Africanism. He has Walter Rodney, the Guyanese Pan-African intellectual to Stanford a few times and tries to sort of keep the flame of Pan-Africanism alive. But it's, it's really, a, in the end, a, a tragic story. But Nkrumah is fondly remembered in Ghana, not by all, but by people who really acknowledge his role on the world stage as putting Ghana on the map as a, as a, a really ambitious world and putting Africa on the map too. I think he's, you know, he's known, I think, as a great African, a great Ghanaian. Yeah, even after he's ousted, 
some of the expatriates wrote to him and kept in communication because that was still like someone they admired. Yeah, absolutely. And Kuma tried to to stay relevant. I mean, one of the reasons that the, that the U.S. was so determined to get him out of there was because he was he was taking Pan Africanism in a more radical direction. He became an exponent of the idea of neocolonialism, the idea that African countries had gained their political independence, but the former colonial power still retained economic control over the country. Maybe today we would call it post-colonialism, but in those days, Nkrumah, people like Fanon, called it neocolonialism. Nkrumah continued to be a sort of a, a presence in, in Pan-Africanism, but he never, he never got close to regaining power in Ghana. To tie it to the present, you mentioned to me that like in 2020, during the time of the George Floyd protests, Ghana sent out a like come home message to Black America. Absolutely. I mean, that tradition of Black Americans going to Ghana as expatriates, as exiles, but also tourists, you know, Ghana has really supported heritage tourism among African-Americans since the 1990s when they really stepped it up. And they draw on this tradition of African-Americans coming to Ghana and welcoming African-American tourism. And so in 2020, when the protests broke out after George Floyd was murdered by the, by the police in Minneapolis, the Ghana Ministry of Culture and Tourism just basically did this outreach and they just said, you know, hey, you, maybe you want to live in a place where you don't have to worry about this kind of violence and disrespect and, and mistreatment. So they really stepped up this campaign of welcoming African-Americans. And it's something that they've been doing, you know, pretty consistently, but at that moment, really kind of prominently and visibly, uh, but they've been doing that for quite some time now. And I have spoken to groups about this history. And a lot of times there will be people in the audience who will say, well, we're ready to go now. <laughs> you know, African-Americans. Wow. At the end of the episode about Liberia, I was also like, well, if you want to go, they'll accept you with open arms. So the same is true about Ghana. Thank you so much, Professor Gaines. Thank you. Thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about Ghana and a, a really uh, interesting moment in African-American history and African history. The two are connected here. Yes, yes, absolutely. Whether you've been listening to this show for a long time or only a little while, thanks. And if you like this show, this episode, or just want people to know more about Black history, introduce them to the show. That word of mouth advertising does wonders. You can follow at We The Black People Pod on Facebook and Instagram. Catch y'all next time. All power to all people, y'all. <laughs>